Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Ready Room. Today, I'm talking with Frank Diana. I'm going to read you his, uh, his bio right off his website. Frank is a recognized futurist, thought leader, and frequent keynote speaker. He has served in various executive roles throughout his career and has over 30 years of leadership experience. At Tata Consultancy Services, he is a thought leader and advisor in the context of business, societal, and economic evolution. He blends a futurist perspective with a pragmatic, actionable approach, leveraging horizon scanning and storytelling to see possible futures. His leadership experience obtained through various executive roles connects practical realities with the need to focus on an emerging future filled with complexity and change. Now, that is it. It sums it up. But if I had to put it in layman's terms, for me, here's how I would describe what Frank does. He is helping to guide leaders into an uncertain future, one in which the pace of change is challenging our ability to adapt. And he's doing so in a way that not only helps their organizations, but helps them to overcome obstacles to human progress. In other words, he's really providing counsel to today's leaders in order to help them create a better tomorrow for all of us. And if that sounds hyperbolic, listen to what Frank says. He's not making flowery generalizations and he's not making uh, predictions about what's going to happen. What he's doing is he's talking specifics uh, and looking for the accelerants and the barriers to progress. And he's helping to recognize those. He's not at some think tank alone with his ideas. He's working directly with leadership to help make crucial decisions. Frank has appeared on a list of influencers, which includes uh, guys like Elon Musk, Nick Bostrom, Ray Kurzweil, Peter Diamandis. Uh, Those are some heavy hitters. I came across his blog a while back, and I have been an avid follower ever since. In a world in which the civil discourse can be exhausting at best and at times disruptive, I am constantly searching for voices of wisdom and sanity that add to the conversation in a way that seeks to solve problems. And for me, Frank Diana is one of those voices. Uh, You can find him. His blog is actually titled Reimagining the Future. And you can find that at frankdiana.net. You can follow him on Twitter as well, at Frank Diana. It really was an honor and a pleasure to be able to talk with him and and to get his take on so many important matters. I feel like we just barely scratched the surface. And as always, my drive home from the studio found me lamenting questions that I wish I would have asked. But in any case, I really enjoyed our time and our conversation I think you're going to enjoy this conversation, too. And so without further ado, I give you Frank Diana. All right. Well, Frank, uh, we're live. Uh, Thank you so much for being here again. I'm really glad we were able to make this uh, work out. Well, thanks for your persistence and uh, happy to be here. <laughs> that's what I do. I, I have to, right? I'm the guy who's got his ha- the hat in hand right now. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I've been following you. I, I, I mentioned I've been following you for a while now. I, I, I can't remember how I came across uh, your work, but uh, I remember coming across your blog 
and thinking, wow, this guy is really fascinating. And, and then uh, I started reading some of the stuff, and I, and I, I saw you. You're out there on YouTube already. Uh, so I listened to something and, and uh, just said, man, I, I would love to talk to this guy. When I found out you were up in Somerset, I thought, oh, well, that's, uh, that's perfect. So we weren't able to actually uh, get it face-to-face, but that's okay. I'm, uh, I'm really, really happy to be talking to you. So thank you again yeah. for being here. No, happy to be here. Thanks for asking. Yeah. So, Frank, you work at uh, Tata Consultancy Services, right? Um, you're a futurist there. Uh, mm-hmm. And so uh, let me see if I got this right. In that capacity, you, uh, you offer your perspective to clients in order to help them uh, uh, best situate themselves for a future that is somewhere from 20 to 30 years out. Um, it, it, did I get that right? Yeah, I mean, I spend time in in leadership forums, not just necessarily clients, um, but talking about the future. What's interesting to me about that notion of 20 to 30 years out is um, one of the things that I impress upon leaders is the fact that the future is coming faster than they think. And so traditional views of how far something might be out, uh, all that stuff is changing. And so taking the future very seriously because of the speed at which it's approaching is is a critical uh, message that I try to send. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I totally want to touch on that because uh, the idea that the future is coming more rapidly all the time um, is is something that's amazing. Uh, I just read a book called The Fourth Age, which I thought maybe – I don't know if you've read that, but maybe we could touch on that um, in a minute and some of the thoughts I had off of it. Sure. But just going back to what you do for Tata, so you, basically you offer this perspective to, to leaders – and uh, and you say, hey, you know, one, you've got to be agile uh, because the future is coming more quickly than you think. How talk about how you um, you actually set up for that? So when you're taking on a new client, you probably have to look at all of the uh, the esoteric variables there, and then say, okay, how am I going to structure uh, what I'm going to present them in, in a way that uh, matches what they're doing? Uh, talk about how that process works. I, I, I'm really, I mean, that seems just fascinating that you would get to to just think about things and then think about them from somebody else's perspective and then try to put that into actionable information. Yeah, yeah. well, this, the second piece of that, their perspective comes later. I mean, it always starts with a view of a broader societal uh, evolution, if you will, and, and where society is going obviously will have implications to any leader, whether it's, it's business or government or other. And so uh, the t- conversations always start there. Uh, so it really has no regard to their their context or their current situation. It's just really a point of view on where things are going and how it might affect them. And then usually step two is more of a discussion around context and, and what that might mean to their world. You know, So uh, every industry is different. Uh, but one thing that's in common across industries is that these artificial boundaries that we created a century ago that kind of distinguish industries are going to collapse. They're already collapsing, right? So it doesn't really matter from an industry context at the highest of levels long term because value and its creation and capture really will have no regard to those boundaries. Um, and you mentioned Agile, um, and that's a really critical piece of the story. Uh, Agile is an overused word as far as I'm concerned, but the at the end of the day, the resilience of an organization, its ability to adapt as, as these shifts occur more rapidly is the critical piece there. And so how do organizations, especially traditional organizations, that you know flexibility, adaptability is not necessarily a strong suit, how do they get to a place where they they can be adaptable and resilient in the face of, of constant change. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I like that word, resiliency, better than agile. You're right. Um, you, you mentioned those barriers that are coming down. T- talk about a couple that you keep seeing. Um, maybe 
uh, regardless of uh, what industry that you're, um, you're looking at, what are some of those boundaries that are crumbling very rapidly in your uh, experience? Well, it's a, a broad story around uh, what led to our, our industry constructs. It really dates back to the, the first, second revolution and the capital intensive nature of building out the railroad system and the, and the roads and, and the command and control hierarchical kind of world that that required led to what we know of as the vertical integration of our industries. As we look at things like the connected car and the smart home, uh, just a number of different ecosystems are forming where, where the way value is created has no regard to those industry boundaries. Those, those are really good examples. Even the smart city, probably the broadest ecosystem out there, is a good example of how really the industry doesn't matter. It's, it's the value that's created and captured, and it spans industries. And so it's leading to, and I'm a big believer in this, uh, what will ultimately be the movement away from the industry construct to something that aligns closer to these ecosystems. You know, what those ecosystems look like. I have a point of view on that that I share with an audience, uh, but it's just that a point of view. You know, how these ecosystems play out uh, could take a number of different directions, but uh, that, that ecosystem word is one that's really coming up a lot in my conversations. Yeah, I've seen that in the blog a couple times, and I, I'm having I'm struggling to kind of visualize that. You said you you do have a, when you when you talk, you you kind of give a conceptualization of what those ecosystems would look like. But essentially, you're saying something like you know a company a corporation like GE is not going to be something unto itself anymore, right? Uh, it'll it'll be a, a modular producer, if you will, of some element of value that is consumed by an ecosystem uh, somewhere in the 2050 timeframe. Maybe we only have a finite set of ecosystems and our traditional corporate construct disappears. Um, those are that, that, That's a very speculative statement. As a matter of fact, as a, as a futurist, um, I'm a really big believer in uh, nobody can predict this stuff. And so uh, when, when people say as if you know, with, with, with certainty that these things will happen, I, I cringe because I just don't know how anybody can say that given how fast things are changing. Uh, so, so the point of view here is that uh, a travel-oriented company, let's take an automotive company that's in their industry, uh, and eventually becomes part of a broad mobility ecosystem where it's really just about getting from here to there, uh, regardless of mode of travel and operation, autonomous vehicles will be a big piece of that. Um, even um, airlines, and uh, as I'm talking to several now, are thinking about the future of aviation. And, and you know, if you go all the way out and you think about virtual presence, uh, do you even need to travel somewhere in, in the future? Uh, and those are all the kinds of discussions that are happening around where these things are going, how quickly they might get there, and what does it mean to me if it goes there? Wow. Yeah, a couple things you said. One, I, I don't. Uh, my day job, I am a pilot, and so uh, I, I've thought about that too. And of course, pilots, we, we've talked about that. Uh, so I, I, I got on that rope that that website. I, I might have even seen it from your blog. The website's called "Will Robots Take My Job?" And I, I just looked up airline pilot. I think I was fairly <laughs> safe for a while, but uh, but well, uh, you know, if you think about that, not to cut you off. Yeah, uh, no go. Already in Dubai and China, you know, um, autonomous passenger drones exist. So a drone that will autonomously, without a pilot, take you wherever you need to go, uh, that's already a reality, right? So really, and some have estimated that by 2022, there will be 10 million of those flights a day versus the 100,000 commercial airline flights that exist a day today. I mean, again, that's highly speculative. But if any of that played out, think about the impact to aviation. Yeah, most definitely. My last guest actually is a guy who started uh, two aerial drone companies in, in Brooklyn. Uh, 
uh, they're big players in the, the tri-state area up there, Manhattan and the tri-state area. Mm-hmm. And we talked it at length. He actually asked me, hey, how do you see airspace changing, like the usage of airspace, how we classify it? And we, we yeah. got into that a little bit. And uh, he mentioned, he was like, hey, there's, there's more drones in the sky now than there are aircraft. And eventually those drones will, be, will have people on board. Um, and so the paradigm will have to shift. Yeah, well, and, and that's one of those potential obstacles. There's, there's obstacles and there's accelerants. And every scenario that I paint, you've got to try to figure out, you know, which ones are the dominant factors that either slow something down or speed it up. You know, in the case of aviation, you know, one of the uh, uh, airline companies I was talking to said, well, with regulation and FAA and all those kinds of things, you know, that could take decades before that's a reality, right? That, that's, that could happen, right? But there's uh, other accelerants that might make that non, a non-issue. Who knows? Yeah, most certainly the stuff that we don't see. Uh, that yeah. would actually play out. Um, and you're right. You said it earlier. Uh, you know, trying to prognosticate with certainty is probably a fool's errand in this case. Yeah. I like what you said. I mean, as a futurist, you're like, hey, I don't. I try not to to make statements that are are, are not not exact, but you know, definites. And uh, I thought about that when I was uh, when I was preparing. I, I saw. I thought, man, Frank's 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 profession must be particularly. Um, meditative or maybe con- contemplative is the word I'm, I'm looking for. You, you must be constantly thinking and contemplating what could happen and not just in one front, but in these ecosystems that you talk about, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the number of scenarios that are emerging is overwhelming. Uh, and a- as a futurist, I- I'm a big believer in painting uh, pictures of possible futures. So what, you know, what kind of futures might emerge? What's the likelihood of them playing out? Uh, you know, even some level of simulation that helps, leaders think about where these things might go. Um, But they're possible futures, and we have to be clear that uh, we have to leave ourselves open to the notion that there could be possible futures. Um, And then, as you said, constantly study and understand uh, so many different things that are happening right now. I think the, the toughest part of my job is, and I think for any leader, is the system thinking required to really do this well. Uh, there's so many moving parts. There's so many things at the innovation level, both in the areas of science and technology, that are moving so quickly. Uh, and when they combine, and that's the big thing, they're combining. And as these things combine, uh, they're creating scenarios that we can't, we, we didn't even envision. So it's just a non, nonstop exercise. Yeah, amazing. I, I actually kind of jotted that down. I said, you know, to be a futurist, you, you, you almost have to be everything, an economist, a physicist, a sociologist, a neuroscientist. I mean, everything that, that, that goes into these, uh, these technologies that are coming down the pike, you have to stay on top of. That must be incredibly difficult. I'm, I'm actually wondering how you do it and, and where you find the bandwidth. <laughs> <laughs> it, it takes a lot of time. Um, there's a lot of reading involved, a lot of research and analysis, um, a lot of networking. I spend yeah, a lot of yeah. time in broad futurist networks where you, you get to take advantage of others uh, and their research and uh, what they're seeing and how they're seeing it play out. So it's just a constant, uh, as I tell folks uh, that I interact with on a daily basis, just a constant exercise and understanding and learning. Uh, you know, at the, at the, at the highest of levels, I, I think that society is heading to a place where it's not just futurists that have to do that continuous learning and lifelong learning. It's obviously all of us, especially as, as we, we start thinking about implications to work in jobs and uh, the pace at which jobs might you know, just change out. It, who knows? Those are other speculative conversations that people are engaged in these days, but uh, impactful stuff. Yeah, for sure. And I, you mentioned how, how the pace of job change. I want to touch on that a little bit later. But one of the things you just said, I, I, um, I got to tell you, so 
you said, hey, I, I network. There's uh, these futurist um, uh, consortiums, uh, societies, uh, get-togethers. That, uh, and then, of course, as you, your clientele, of course, takes you across a broad spectrum as well, I imagine. And, and I actually um, I saw your name on a list uh, with guys like uh, Bostrom, Kurzweil, Diamandis, Musk, among other uh, um, heavyweight influencers. And I thought, wow, way to go, Frank. That's really <laughs> something else. I don't know if that makes you uh, uh, proud or scared or maybe a little bit of both, but uh, you're, you're there in terms of, uh, of being uh, among those that people say, hey, this guy is, uh, has something to add to the conversation. Yeah, I was very proud to have uh, joined that list. And as you mentioned, there's some some really uh, heavyweight uh, thinkers uh, on that list. So uh, just to be in the same list is uh, is uh, extremely satisfying and gratifying. Um, yeah. But but yeah, but like you know, like anything else, um, it, things are moving so fast that uh, you got to stay on top of this if you want to stay relevant and if you want to stay uh, impactful in terms of your ability to uh, to lead and advise and and just paint pictures. I I'm a big believer that the most effective way for any leader today to communicate um, is through storytelling. Um, I, I counsel CEOs all the time on, uh, even if it's just an investment discussion, you, you wanna move into a new space, you wanna find new, new ways to grow in these emerging areas. Um, tell a story because those stories are the most effective way to uh, get somebody's attention, to get people to understand. Um, and in, in a lot of cases, if you're a business person to get uh, funding or in, you know an investment. And so, so storytellers will do very well. As a matter of fact, I know companies that have hired uh, Hollywood types and uh, cartoonists and creative writers and all, all aimed at um, telling that story. Yeah, absolutely. As humans, we definitely, a story uh, resonates, especially when it has all those elements that we recognize as timeless in terms of, uh, in terms of helping us to kind of understand the world we live in. So that's, that's absolutely true. Uh, much better than reading uh, a bunch of uh, data on a PowerPoint slide, as we, <laughs> as we all are aware of, uh, yeah. as many meetings as we've been in going, wow, this, this guy is, uh, maybe has something to offer, but I've tuned out long, long ago. <laughs> uh, so you're right. I mean, that's a great point, Frank. Uh, tell a story relate to them, have the audience actually go, wow, where, where's this going? This is fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think is essential to getting those, uh, those ideas across. You know, I, I was, like I said, I, I've been reading your blog post. I watch you on YouTube a couple of times. Uh, and, and then I've been following you uh, on, on Twitter and in a world that, uh, you know, for lack of a better, uh, word is constantly seems vitriolic, especially Twitter. Uh, I, I look for these voices of clarity and sanity and wisdom uh, that I can follow and, and go, okay, this person is actually saying something that's cutting through all of that. I got to tell you, for, for me, you, you've become one of those voices. So I, I sense for many others as well. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah, no problem. And then it just goes back to being on that list, you know. So once you've got that varsity letter on, uh, there's people that are out there <laughs> going, hey, this, this guy's uh, taking us somewhere. So uh, whether it's the league championship or the future of humanity. <laughs> well, you know, I think the uh, the secret there is is um, balance in point of view and perspective is uh, when you tell that story, tell all sides of that story. Uh, you know, remain sort of an objective observer and allow folks to kind of draw their own conclusions as opposed to a lot of folks that, you know, jump right to the conclusion. And then, you know, hype. There's a lot of hype out there right now and, and cutting through the noise 
is a very difficult thing for any leader out there. Not just the hype, but the, the speed at which some of this stuff is moving combined with the hype has every leader kind of confused and overwhelmed with exactly where some of this might go. So, you know, painting pictures that, that help cut through some of that noise is, is critical. And, and I, I try to contribute. I, I appreciate the feedback and hopefully it's, it's helping. Yeah, no, um, no problem. Thank you. So let me, I, I thought I would relate a story, um, that when I, when it happened, I, I was like, wow, I've got to get Frank's take on this. Uh, so it was pretty fortuitous that it happened recently. Uh, I mentioned that I have a daughter, she's seven years old. So, and she's, uh, she's just, uh, uh, an incredible thinker. She's always asking these really, uh, well, I want to say not surprising, but questions that have me kind of pause for a moment. And so the other day, my wife came home, she, and she says, uh, hey, so uh, our daughter came, uh, we were driving back, and she said, uh, uh, mommy, could I have an Alexa? And my wife asked her, well, why do you want an Alexa? And she replied that it could be your best friend. And so my wife, she thought about this, and she said, um, well, Alexa can't be your friend because it's not a real person. And my daughter insisted that Alexa you know, could talk to her and answer her questions and therefore could be her friend. And my uh, wife repeated that, hey, it's important to have friends that you can uh, see as well as hear. Uh, and, and I think my daughter thought about that and got disinterested. And my, my wife said, we went, we went for ice cream. And, and that was the end of that. And I, 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 you know, we're sitting there talking about this on the couch at night. And I looked at my wife. I said, you know, I think you answered that well. I, I, I agree with that. But it also occurred to me that in the future, possibly what we've told her may be inaccurate. Hmm. So let's tell a story. I mean, that's one of those things where we can paint a picture of a possible future. And you know, these, these digital assistants, which is what they are today, I mean, Alexa and Siri and others help us with certain things. Um, I mean, it's the, there's intelligence there, but it's very limited intelligence. Um, but it is heading towards a place where these digital assistants become digital agents, where um, they've learned so much about us, or they have access to our calendars and everything that we do on, on a daily basis that they can start making some decisions on our behalf. So envision an agent that that knows you have dinner at five and and calls up an autonomous car for you to be there if you know four thirty to pick you up, and it's doing all that for you. So now the agent becomes, you know, uh, an agent of of activity and and, and decision making and not just uh, you know an assistant that plays your 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 favorite playlist, if you will. And then let's go, let's go even further. And then somewhere down the road, the uh, agent um, becomes an autonomous agent that now is doing things on your behalf uh, and even maybe blocking you from doing it yourself. Now, the, the examples there are, are, and if you think about biometrics and where that's going, if you think about uh, the belief that our behaviors and our, our changes in our own chemistry can be observed and understood. Uh, and so uh, the agent will know more about you than you know about yourself. And so we hit a world where that's true. Then I, I always tell these stories because they they're impactful. They make a point. Then the agent might say, in the upcoming election, you can't vote because you've been distracted by all the campaign rhetoric, and I know exactly how you want to vote, so I'll do that for you. Thank you. Or uh, you can't um, go out. You can't date that individual because that's the wrong person for you. So I think you're better off with this person. So you know, it's it, extreme, if you will, but it does speak to a progression that could happen. As I said before, these are all possible futures, right? And so 
if you think about robots, and I don't know if you've ever seen the videos of Sophia, the, the social robot, um, but if you have, you can see very quickly that, you know, spend enough time watching her, you forget that you're, you're observing a robot. And, and what if a robot like that, that uses the same kind of capabilities, uh, gets very conversational, uh, gets to know you as a person, and in our aging society, loneliness and isolation is one of the leading forms of, of causes of death. So what if a robot like that becomes the companion and actually solves that world challenge? So with every one of these scenarios, there there's the, wow, that could, I don't want that to happen reaction. And then there's the, wow, that, that solves a really acute problem for humanity. And I think that's the challenge. The challenge is not blocking this innovation so that it doesn't advance and solve the problems of society, but not allowing them to get so far into the extreme that we create a society that we don't want. And, and your, your story of your daughter is, an, is exactly that story, right? Where do we draw the line between our own humanity and how much we allow technology to replace it. Yeah. Wow. There's so much in that. Um, you know, you're you're, you're mentioning, uh, you know, a robot, or well, let's not even call it a robot, but um, uh, well, let's call it an artificial intelligence for now. Even though I, I think that that we'll talk more about that later, but that is able to comfort somebody who is lonely or isolated. You know, to the extent that they're able to feel like they are not lonely or isolated. And I thought that was the exact. Um, that was the exact conclusion I came to in my mind after my wife and I talked was, you know, in the future, that might not be the right thing to say. Now, of course, what you just mentioned is that balance, that balance between the technology, making sure that that technology is able to flourish in a way that it helps us. And I think that, you know, is important, you know, so that we don't regulate it completely out of existence so that, you know, these things that, that maybe benefit mankind would be, you know, not available. On the other hand, you're right. We could go in a way that seems, uh, I mean, uh, you know, let's face it, that we all have friends that are, are, that kind of have the worst dystopian um, ideals about what might happen down the road, yeah. right? Yeah. And I, I, I consider myself an optimist in that regard. Uh, I don't, you know, I haven't picked up all the newest technology, but I always am thinking, yeah, this is going to be incredibly helpful. So I, I think that, that that point is is really amazing. And we and you talked on a, you touched on a couple other uh, things I want to get to uh, later, which you know kind of goes down that AI road. Um, but you mentioned the problems that technology solves, and I, I was thinking to myself uh, beforehand, there's there's so much. So uh, in our, our, I don't know if maybe your job. I, I wonder if what you do gives you a um, a mindfulness about the political rhetoric, um, because I I talked about again me and my wife talking. I said, you know, I think that so many of these problems that we that we argue about or or get you know wrapped around are going to we're going to kind of scoff at uh, down the road as technology solves these problems. Uh, and I feel like that is an optimistic view. I, I don't know. Uh, do, you, do you have a, do you seem sometimes above the fray at all when, uh, from your unique perspective? Yeah. So, um, I agree with that. The, the, um, challenges of climate change, uh, obviously political and a lot of debate, right. But the, the, Challenges of climate change, the, the uh, challenges of runaway healthcare costs. Um, I do believe that um, science and technology ultimately solve those grand challenges. 
Um, and we're already seeing signs uh, of an ability to do exactly that. Now, there are, there are big issues, uh, especially in the U.S., uh, in terms of data and the need for data to solve some of these grand challenges, if you will. I mean, uh, hopefully we resolve some of those things. But the science and technology piece of this, I do, I do believe, uh, will advance our human flourishing and development in ways that we haven't seen since that second industrial revolution. Uh, of course, as we said before, it could go in other directions as well, right? It's a, it's a balance and how do you manage it to, to those ends. But it brings up a really interesting uh, topic that I have focused on a great deal in the last six months to a year, and that is advancing our human flourishing. Now, if you if you think back in history, and, and I find history is very instructive, uh, you know, the greatest period of human flourishing ever was, was uh, spurred on by the Industrial Revolution, the first and the second, primarily the second. Uh, and if you think back to those days, a lot had to happen to, uh, to drive that flourishing, and obviously it was mostly in the West, uh, Western world. Uh, not everybody benefited from it, but but I, I, I don't know if you saw the blog post where I talk about some of this, but historically, humans had to take action to take it to where it eventually went. Uh, and I really do believe we're in the same place um, that we were back then, where another period of great invention, uh, invention is coming, uh, and human action is going to have to uh, drive it to places where it will drive the next level of human flourishing. A, a famous uh, economist, Robert J. Gordon, wrote a book called um, the, the Rise and Fall of American Growth. And it was fascinating, really well done book. Uh, he concludes in that book that we'll just never see another period like that again. And so his conclusion is the standard of living that was set way back then is our standard of living. Um, and it's a logical argument that concludes that the convergence of so many forces had to come together. World War II, World War I, the Great Depression, all these things were catalysts that drove human action. You know, And, and they, they are like once-in-a-lifetime kinds of things, at least we hope in the, in the case of world wars. Um, but electricity, you know, the invention of electricity, the internal combustion engine, those are once-in-a-lifetime kind of things that fundamentally altered society. And so his, his conclusion is we're, we're just never going to see those things again. Now, I fundamentally disagree primarily because I do think we're entering another period of great invention. And, you know, eliminating chronic diseases, for example, like heart disease and cancer, to me, those are uh, those are grand things. In extending our healthy lives, those are things I, I think that could be on par. His, his conclusion was that uh, immortality or the mortality rates and uh, really reducing those, that's much more important than living longer. And again, solid arguments. But anyway, I, I just find it fascinating. I do too, and I would say that just listening to you, and you said, "Hey, I I, I disagree with that." Uh, uh, having just read uh, Byron Reese's book, I I do as well. I mean, he he certainly makes a compelling argument that the yeah. what he calls the fourth age is upon us, yeah. and that it will fundamentally change human beings. Uh, you know, he mentioned the three ages prior, but yeah, I, I I agree. I can't imagine that what we're seeing coming down the pike isn't going to fundamentally change us. I feel like it's already starting to fundamentally change us. You probably have seen that as well. Yeah. The uh, Here's the difference in my mind. Yeah. I, I think we, we look at periods like the Industrial Revolution um, in, in the sense that it did kind of set the, the modern standard of living, right? But I look at it in the context of of tipping points. You might have seen some of this in my work. Uh, since humans have tipped twice, you know, from hunter-gatherer to agriculture, and that fundamentally changed what it meant to be human. And then from that agriculture era to the industrial era, which we're still in, uh, which also fundamentally changed what it meant to be human. To me, it's the tipping points that matter. Are we heading towards another tipping point? And, and defined as something that fundamentally alters what it means to be human. This tipping point, potentially, 
could be the, the, the grandest of them all in the context of what it means to be human and not necessarily uh, in a good way, right? I mean, if we, if we merge with machines, if we birth a conscious machine, all these things are on the la- you know, in the lab as we speak and people do think we'll eventually get there. That fundamentally alters humans in a way that we've never seen before. Yeah, at the it, again, I'm coming back because it's fresh in my mind. But at the end of that book, he says the same thing. He says, uh, you know, we'll either uh, we'll either be the catalyst that drives uh, the human race to its next great uh, epic, or we'll be the ones that destroy human beings altogether and give rise to something altogether different, which uh, may very well be uh, machine-based intelligence. But he oh. he actually says, hey, I, I hope we merge in the and I, and he compares it to the way that. Uh, uh, Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthalus merged um, eons ago, and and, and one one species emerged, but was emergent from that um, that confluence in that human beings and 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 a potential artificial intelligence could be the same thing. Yeah, and and there's so many different points of views on whether those Certainly. things are good things or bad things. But you could almost see the evolution towards uh, an end state like that if we think about embedding technology in our bodies. And we will do that in the context of solving a problem, right? Whether it's Parkinson's or, you know, pick a pick a disease or a nanobot that flows through your bloodstream and attacks cancer cells and leaves healthy cells alone. Now, who wouldn't want to do that, right? And so the more we do those things, the more we start to kind of merge with machines. And so if you play that out to its conclusion, you know, what part of you is human and what part of you is machine at some point in the future? Yeah, most definitely, and I I know that there's already uh, there's a Dutch company that has already uh, created these nanobots that can target uh, a specific part of the human body. So yeah, that is amazing. Yeah. You know, th- this goes back to something you, you uh, touched on earlier, which is healthy life extension. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's particularly fascinating uh, to me, and I I think it would be a mistake, you know, to call it a newly emergent field. You know, given Ponce de Leon's search, uh, you know, in the 16th century, uh, <laughs> but but the the technology of today has certainly made that more of a uh, less of a fable or fairy tale, and more of something that could very well be coming down. What is your sense of what's going to be possible with a healthy life extension? Well, that's, so that's one of the many scenarios that I focus on, and so I, I, again, I just try to paint some possible futures, um, and I always tell an audience, and again, a lot of this is for effect, but. But, but it, it's necessary just to see that the art of the possible, right? So uh, life scientists believe that the first person to live to 200 has already been born. Now, if you sit back and think about that and its implications to society, you know, in an audience of, uh, of executives, what does that mean to life insurance and retirement? And if you're healthy and, and you're rejuvenating your organs and so your body feels like it's 30, you know, you're, you're 70 in age, but you're 30, what does it mean to marriage and having children? Uh, I mean, there's so many questions to explore there. But to your point, uh, you mentioned Ray Kurzweil before, you know, famous futurist and sure. head of engineering at Google. And he, um, among others, founded the company Calico, which is uh, actually focused on eliminating death altogether, right? So I think Ray has famously said he wants to live long enough to benefit from his work, right? So uh, eliminating death. And, and when you say that in an audience, people look at you like you have 50 heads. Uh, how would we possibly ever eliminate death? And the, the, the belief here is that if you treat aging like any other disease, um, then why couldn't you cure it like you would cure another disease? And I, that's the fundamental belief system there. Um, I do I do personally believe that we will continuously extend our healthy lives. I, I think, as you said, the science and the technology will be there to enable it. 
Um, society might not be ready for it. I, I did a great session at TCS's Innovation Forum in London, and uh, David Wood, a futurist uh, who wrote the book uh, Abolishing Aging, The Abolition of Aging, uh, spoke on that topic. And he was a big believer that we're seeing uh, breakthroughs that have him believing that we will eventually abolish aging. But society has to accept that it's okay that, that those belief systems, and I'll come back to that several times, our core belief systems were built over, you know, a period of time. We, we all are a creature of what we know and learned. Our belief system says that we grow old and die, right? So unless you unless you overcome that notion and accept the fact that maybe you, you don't have to, uh, it's just an interesting set of discussions. But if you look at predictions and projections, the belief around that kind of 140, 150-year life and the progression of our how, how much longer we'll live, they don't match. I mean, people into the 2040s think we'll extend maybe three, four, five more years, right? So it's, inter- it's an interesting question. Yeah, most definitely. Well, I can tell you that I'm, I'm ready to believe that. Uh, <laughs> I'm ready to change my paradigm. Uh, you're right. No uh, what you said is uh, so true. We are um, human beings, and, th- and this is true you know, from, a, from a sociologist standpoint. We are yeah. the conglomeration of everything, the, the memes and genes that, that we've been given throughout our yeah. life. Uh, yeah. They all play a part. And and I'm I'm very I try to be very mindful of that, which is one of the reasons I do this podcast. By the way, is is because I'm I want to challenge all of that. I'm always looking to challenge uh, my beliefs, uh, which I think is, uh, and this is off the topic, but I think we could all use a little bit more of that in our uh, in our society. We might be able to sort of see things from another perspective, which we have a hard time doing. Uh, that being said, when it, when we do talk about aging, it seemed to me it seems to me one of the the big problems is that. Let's say we're able to even, you know, we're able to overcome what we consider aging. It's the it's the mind that I think is, or maybe let's just say the brain, right? Instead, yeah. because the brain is a machine that we have an in uh, such a small understanding of at this point. We don't know how to remake it. That's the race for AI, right? We don't understand what the emergent properties are that create that what we call our intelligence, or maybe our conscious is the better word, um, but. You know, you could keep a physical body from aging, but I don't know that – I'm not sure what you would do with the brain in terms of keeping that from – but I I would be interested to know what the theories are on that. (laughs) I know you're not – I know you're not uh, Mr. Wood, but uh, (laughs) – Just another example of, uh, you know, scary scenarios and fascinating scenarios. In in the case of the brain, first and foremost, there's so much – uh, investment being thrown at brain science and trying to, as you said, try to understand exactly what, 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 how the brain functions and can we leverage that understanding to advance artificial intelligence and other kinds of things. And, and, and even, even something simpler, the ability of an IBM Watson to analyze you know, millions and millions of medical records yeah. and, and detect Alzheimer's six years before it happens. Now, if that happens, and you know we're already seeing evidence of that, then you know a disease where you can't reverse its effects now you can get in front of, and and so, so even those kinds of advances give us an ability to kind of maintain the healthy brain at some level, right? And I'm the, I'm not a neurologist, and I'm not deep into the sciences here, so this is all what people are are saying. Yeah, but this goes back to the many hats that you wear. <laughs> yeah. So so let, now let's go back to the notion of. You know, every organ in the body, the, the belief is eventually we can rejuvenate, replace 3D printed, whatever. The brain cannot. But what if you could upload your brain to the Internet 
and and retain your memories and and who you are um, is now on the internet. And so somewhere down the road, your body, even if we can't reverse the aging process, is irrelevant because I can download you into a robot of your choice, a body of your choice. And and here's the theory of living forever, right? And you just go, you're immortal at this point. You live on forever. And so, you know, many people react, well, I don't like that. (laughs) I don't think that's a society I want to live in, Um, right? So there's just so many different ways to react to this. Um, And it's just interesting. There's there's so many people that believe we'll never – get there because the underpinning there is the understanding of what makes us conscious beings. And, uh, and there's just too many different, uh, places to go there. Yeah. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> no, abs- that, uh, look, I'm going to keep going at that then because, uh, you're, you're, you're so right. Um, you know, the idea, I think that to me somehow seems to be the most plausible, um, way forward would be, uh, some sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, uploading of our consciousness into something that is not tied to organic matter, but that has those emergent properties that we talked about, right. um, so that you or someone else. Of course, the, the, the question then becomes, the, the famous philosophical um, exercises, okay, so you're uploaded into a machine, and you're still standing there, and your machine says, hi, I'm, I'm Bart, and you go, no, I'm Bart. Who is Bart at that point, right? right. Uh, what is the self? And that you know again going back to uh to the to Byron Reese's book his chapter on consciousness and what our understanding of that was was well uh, um pardon the pun mind blowing um i, I mean if you want to if you want to uh, question your daily commute read that book or or at least read that chapter right and you'll you you know uh, you'll really have to muster the determination to uh, jump on the on-ramp of the Garden State Expressway there, <laughs> thinking that there's any real meaning to what you're doing, right? <laughs> well, I mean, extremes. Those, I mean, again, you, you read books like that, and I, it was a fascinating book. He did a phenomenal job. Some brilliant folks out there talking about this stuff, but it, it will generate some violent reactions from some people. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, we, we don't want to get into the spiritual side of this thing, but, you know, religious, and, and I am one, I'm a Catholic and proud of it. And and you would say uh, this: what makes you you is not the brain, right? That that's just one one perspective. And there's a lot of people that believe that, right? Yeah. So when you have these kind of conversations, it's the it's the dystopian versus utopian conversation, and and it's it's polarized. It's just absolutely polarized. Yeah, I, I'm always fascinated by people that are, that find themselves polarized by that because, frankly, when I read this, I I just find myself fascinated by the. Uh, the possibilities on all sides of it. I, I don't, I, I don't ever find myself getting angry about, or at least in terms of this, I'm usually just like, "Wow, this is, I don't know the answer." Wow, let's keep looking for more. <laughs> so you yeah, just mentioned even it. In, yeah. even, I'm sorry. Even in the in the communities of experts, they're polarized, right? So yeah. there's so many camps on AI and exactly where it will go and where it won't go. There's so many camps in this topic in terms of who believes we can crack the consciousness problem, who says we'll never get there, right? And so that's that goes back to the leadership dilemma. Um, the, it, how much of this is science fiction and how much of this is real? And then if you could even get to an answer there, um, what kind of timeline, right? Those are the the pressing questions for any leader today is, uh, you know, just take a simple one, autonomous vehicles. When does it disrupt my business, right? Okay, maybe I believe now that it's no longer science fiction based on what's occurred in the last two, three, four years. Um, but I'm still not convinced that it happens in the near term, right? And so you, you might be less apt to 
act upon disrupt, disruptive forces that you just don't feel are close enough to, to warrant attention. Yeah. You know, so going back to what you said a moment ago about, uh, I guess, reconciling a, a spiritual view with, with a scientific view, uh, everybody has to do that in their own, their own way. But I, I do sense that you, you probably are, I, I don't know, maybe I should just ask, are you one of those that feels that we can, that, that machines will have an emergent conscious as we understand it at some point? Well, yeah, again, I, I try not to do opinion. Yeah, sure. Um, because of the fact that I want I want to paint yeah. pictures. And I don't, I don't want to paint people. you into a box either in that one. So I mean, maybe just a sense or I, I don't know. If... So if you ask me today, my opinion is that we'll, we'll never crack the consciousness problem. Um, so I, I'm not. And as a matter of fact, I think we waste cycles thinking about it because what's the difference if. If we create an artificial intelligence that is very intelligent and and helps us solve these grand challenges, because that's one of the the major benefits of pursuing the knowledge gained through AI, because it's it's knowledge that advanced us through our humanity as we know it today, as as we went from fire to all kinds of inventions and writing, uh, and and the printing press, all those things expanded our knowledge base, and as that knowledge base grew, we advanced society. I think artificial intelligence is the pinnacle. And so when you have that kind of knowledge, what can't you solve, right? Yes. So that to me is the discussion, is can we get there? And then on the strength of that, as we said before, solve the climate change problems, solve the chronic diseases, solve all those things. The consciousness issue, um, I think, just distracts from some, some some really good things that we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, no, I, I, that, that may be correct. And when you hear things, I think I read a, a theory, you know, one of the theories of consciousness was that consciousness uh, derives from uh, quantum interactions at, uh, at, the, uh, at that level in the brain. And, and then when you start thinking about how in the world are we ever going to, you know, is it really just, you know, is the brain a machine? Is it not? Is there something else? Right. You know, right. the, the, but the problem itself seems so daunting, although not, uh, maybe not, um, you know, maybe daunting now, but maybe in the future they would say something different. But, but I, I do kind of think about that, and I'm not real sure either. I, I haven't made a decision on that one way or the other. And what I do know is that we're going to continue to make these incredibly rapid technological advances, which is, uh, which is where, you know, you find yourself sort of helping people understand how that's going to go. Because, you know, it took us 5,000 years, right, to go from, uh, you know, the wheel. And we were earthbound that entire time. And with the span of 60 years, we not only got off the earth, we went to the moon. Um, I think I read that, you know, if you're holding an iPhone, you, um, and this, maybe this was hyperbole, but I read it somewhere. If you're holding an iPhone, you hold more computing power in your hand than existed on the earth in 1950. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure if that's the exact, but, but yeah, it's just amazing. It's, it's mind-numbing, yeah. as I like to say, right, when you think about some of this. Yeah, does it does that ever, like, I don't know if scare is the right word, uh, w when you're crafting strategy with a client, does it scare you to to help them posture? I, not, I guess probably not, because you've already said, uh, you know, you're, you're not seeing anything with certainty, but you're trying to help a client uh, posture themselves for a world that is uh, coming down the pike. Uh, and the fact that if it took us 5,000 years to get from the abacus to the iPad, <laughs> 25 years from now, we're going to have something. If you believe in that, uh, uh, in that theory that the technology continues to double itself, right, at a, at a pace, um, then 25 years from now, we're going to have something so far ahead of the iPad that we can't even, we can't even imagine what that is. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, the exponential progression of technology, I, I think, continues unabated. I mean, uh, several things have to happen. These are the, the dots that have to connect, right? I think we do we do enter a world of new compute paradigms like quantum computing that are required um, to, to move some of this forward. We do have to think about the energy required to drive this kind of compute um, and what that might mean to advances in other forms of energy. And this is how all these dots connect and intersect, right? Um, but in the context of of leaders and and the, the pace. One, I think it's it's the pace phenomena that makes this this period different than anything that ever came before. Because a lot of folks argue that we've been here before, and we've always solved these problems before. And although that's probably true at some level, I don't think we've ever been in a place where the the pace uh, is what it is. Yeah, and, and I agree the, with that. The, you know, yeah, the the way things, the innovation and the pace of innovation, I think, is the is the major difference. But in the context of leaders, and and I, I got there six seven years ago. Um, forget, forget the scenario. Understand that a traditional business or even government agency can never survive if you're not positioned to shift as the shifts occur. That goes back to the notion of agility, resilience, et cetera. So, so lesson number one is how do you get yourself to a place where you are resilient? You, you are adaptive, like, like biology is adaptive. Uh, and so, one, now you're positioned, you accept that shifts are going to occur quickly, that could undermine my entire business, and you've positioned yourself to, to shift with the shift. And then the second piece is, is, again, I'm a big believer you can't predict this stuff. So you, as a, as a leader, are in a constant state of rehearsal. Everything is a rehearsal. So you're, you're rehearsing these scenarios, and you're doing it in a way that gives you some kind of guidance uh, in terms of direction and path. Uh, and you're never going to have a full view because this stuff changes so quickly. Um, but I think culturally, organizations have to be comfortable with, you know, experimentation is the, is the word we like to use today. But I, I like the notion of rehearsing, you know, rehearsing the future in ways that give us guidance and direction. Yeah. So you've touched on this a bunch already, which is leadership. Obviously, what you're doing is you're helping leaders uh, to gauge what's happening and to be positioned for it. And so uh, as you're talking about that, you're saying, hey, you need to be ready to adapt. You need to be able to, um, well, adapt was in the word, but like a, biolog- a biological organism would uh, yep. would do so. Yep. It, but you're, you're talking about that in terms of a, um, an organizational uh, uh, network, right? Um, for la- for lack yep. of a better, an organizational uh, entity, I guess, would be the term. Um, so difficult. So uh, when you're working with that, what do you what do you find? What is the big holdup? Uh, you know, leadership is one of those things that is has been a part of my life that fascinates me. I was I was a Marine Corps officer for 24 years, and so leadership, I've I've always uh, uh, been trying to hone. I'm always getting better at honing those skills. It would seem to me that one of the biggest holdups in terms of getting leaders and organizations to start uh, positioning themselves in a way that matters would be the fact that, one, we have – you already mentioned it. There's this entrenched sort of thinking, the idea that what we have is what is going to work and has worked. Plus, yep. when you do do that and something did work, you set up entire bureaucracies based on that. And now, how in the world – do you flex with a bureaucracy that is not, you know, to tear it down and start over would be almost to start the business again? Yeah, yeah. Well, so you mentioned a couple of things there. I mean, organizational culture is the biggest thing. And underlying that, that culture is is the, the organizational belief system. And so we've, we've, we've said this a couple of times, right? So unlearning 
uh, as humans is probably one of the most difficult things that we can do or try to do. Um, but we really, as as leaders, as as humans, have to really start to think about that unlearning, unlearning all the things that we think we know about the world and appreciate and understand that those things are being challenged. So at the organizational level, as as what you have been and what, how you have done things starts to get challenged, I mean, there's a number of different alternatives. So the the biggest path, the, the best path forward to me is to, in your core business, uh, get to that place of relevance and resilience and continue to grow so that that growth can spur on uh, growth in new areas, right? So as these innovations occur and these new paths to growth emerge, trapped value that you find within every business, um, you're able to, to explore and rehearse those things because the core is 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 growing, it's adaptable, and it feeds your, your growth areas. Not easy stuff. Yeah. And so no. what, what we find is most innovation, because of the immune system of, of a traditional business, you know, a lot of leaders are, are concluding that they have to spin that off into something separate, get away from the bureaucracy, get away from the immune system and antibodies that kill new ideas and innovation, get away from the belief systems that have undermined uh, efforts in the past, and, and move it to a place where it can thrive and grow on its own. Um, that That's a viable strategy, but it always has an Achilles heel, which is the capabilities that it requires from the core. So that linkage back to the core is sort of that Achilles heel that could still undermine your ability to, to advance a new business forward. And then maybe more importantly, <laughs> the startups and new businesses start off in adaptive places and then end up in the same place that the core was, and that is bureaucracy and things built that start to undermine the new business, right? So so it's not just creating a new business, but understanding that that business in and of itself now grew up a digital native, and it has to stay that way. Yeah. Wow. There's so much in that. One of the things that was I was kind of thinking is, you know, in that way, maybe as as – organizations grow, they have a life cycle too. It's almost as if what we're, what we're talking about with the, with the healthy life extension would have to be applied to organizations in that same way because uh, that, that core is still there. Yeah, I don't know yeah. how you would um, – uh, it seems like you'd almost – and you talked about it. It seems like you'd almost have to parallel something like, hey, here's what we need to do. Here's what to, – to ride the wave, to stay on the front of that. We, we have to kind of sense – you know, start building something that's parallel that would eventually become more the the artery. But, but meanwhile, the the flow of blood still still goes in that direction that the uh, that the organization started. And I don't know if that's making sense at all. But you you, you said it. You start out with this place of uh, of incredible uh, possibilities where you're able to go in in any direction because you you've just started and you're and you haven't formed that. But then as things start to grow and trench and solidify, it's it's much harder to do so. Yeah, well, unless you go in with the vision of ensuring that you've built an organization that can pivot as the pivot is required. And, and you know, there's a book titled Dual Transformation that actually tackles this topic quite well. Uh, and the dual transformation piece of this talks to what I said before, you know, maintaining the relevance of the core and its ability to adapt quickly uh, as you build the new growth engines of the future. And ultimately, those growth engines may be the core uh, or replace the traditional business uh, and 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 that's that's a fine path to go to go forward with but as i said before i think it's a vicious cycle if the new business then just ends up with the same immune system and and problems that the old business had right 
Absolutely, yeah, because then it's it's not fighting those. Uh, and I loved what you just said. I think there's uh, antibodies is what you called them in the organization, yeah. which what a great analogy that is. Uh, I, I was able to visualize that right away, yeah. And all of a sudden something, there's a new virus that, that they aren't able to uh, to adapt to. And, yeah. and, I, and I started thinking about, you know, Jonas Salk for, uh, for organizations <laughs> in some way. So... So, um, you know, we, we talked, we touched a little bit on, on these, uh, some of these barriers or problems that uh, technology might be solving. One of them uh, is wealth inequality. That seems to be a big topic uh, nowadays. And when we talk wealth inequality, uh, again, uh, polarized, highly charged. I look at it more from a fascinating kind of perspective. Uh, but I, w- I wanted to get your takes. Uh, I think uh, I've, there, there's the, there's the, you know, the pessimistic view, I think, would be, hey, wealth inequality, uh, a, a, a fewer percentage of the population owns a greater percentage of wealth than at any time in history. That would seem troubling on its face. Um, on the other side of the argument, you would say, hey, maybe that's so, but look around the world. Everywhere you go, life um, uh, GDP is better, life expectancy is better, and overall, um, uh, I guess, uh, you know, the consumption rate continues to improve. In other words, there's that rising tide. So everybody's living a better life. So why does it matter if there's a collection of wealth in some spot? What is your sense of how going forward wealth inequality is going to look? So um, one of the, I mentioned obstacles and accelerants, right? One of the the broad obstacles is societal unrest um, as we move into this uh, emerging future. If you look at some of the de- demographics, and again, these are all possible scenarios, right? So what I'm, what I'm going to say doesn't necessarily mean it plays out this way, but there's a number of economists that believe it plays out exactly this way. And that is um, that the world is aging, that we're seeing a drop in working age population, that we're seeing a drop, global drop in fertility rates. And so in most places, we're not having enough children at the replacement level. Uh, and so all of those things combine to um, fuel an era of automation between now and 2030. And so there's going to be an awful lot of capital thrown and automating just about anything that can be automated. And the view then is that by 2030, that inequality issue that you just mentioned is exacerbated and at a very problematic place because the owners of capital at that point uh, are the owners uh, of most of the wealth in the world uh, and there's very few jobs for individuals to sustain themselves now again a possible scenario and there's contradicting views that say you know we're never going to replace that we're never going to rid of that many jobs but we've been here before maybe 25 30 percent of jobs disappear uh, wherever it is uh, you know, I'm a big believer that the job impacts are going to be very significant. I do believe that what I just uh, mentioned plays out at some level that way. Uh, but again, anything can happen to change that. So if we're in a, in a world of uh, exacerbated inequality, uh, where now uh, it's not as nice as you just mentioned from a prosperity perspective, because a, a person's ability to sustain themselves through work is, is diminished. And what does that world look like? Again, a possible scenario or a possible future that I just painted there. So, uh, and that doesn't even include biological inequality. If uh, that healthy life extension that we just talked about is only available to the wealthy, if uh, it's enhancing our bodies uh, so that we're smarter, faster, uh, any number of different enhancements are only available to the wealthy. Uh, what what does that say to the state of uh, of the world if 
and, and does revolution occur? Is societal unrest at such a place that uh, is no longer sustainable and tenable? These are scenarios. It could play out that way. Who knows? Yeah. Well, so that brings me to another point as we're talking about this and you're going through these possible scenarios. I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe uh, this is a good time to bring up something like universal basic income, which is also on the uh, on the minds of a great many people. Um, I, I want to get your thoughts. Uh, my, you know, I, I kind of again am one of these guys that sits in the middle and can see uh, a little bit of the uh, the uh, both sides of that story. Uh, you know, I like the idea of everyone getting enough money so that they don't have to worry about surviving beyond you know the next day, week, month, whatever, um, so that they have enough to put a roof over their head, feed their family, and then maybe even a little bit of extra money to just to spend uh, discretionarily. Uh, I, I, that sounds like a good idea. Um, on the other hand, I, I, I would be, it, it would seem like at least the way the world is now, that that might be not what happens. Instead, some people would just rebaseline where they are, maybe squander that. We wouldn't see all of a sudden everybody who gets a paycheck becoming, you know, responsible fiscal participants in a con- an economy all of a sudden, just because they've got money. Uh, we would see uh, probably a lot of the same human, um, behavior that we see anyway, and that maybe it might only be a starting point for, you know, if, especially if it's a, a government program that, you know, it'd be a starting poli- point for politicians to offer ever more. Um, so I wonder how that would, would look. You know, I, I, again, I can see both, uh, especially given the scenario you just mentioned where, you know, we could get to a point where, you know, people who control the capital uh, have a such a share of the wealth that um, – in a time where there's not a, enough jobs for people to uh, to to meaningly participate, that there could be some serious social unrest without it. What what are your thoughts on UBI? It, it comes back to um, the discussion we had on belief systems. Um, if you have a UBI conversation today, your mental model, as you absorb that, is is an old mental model, right? So a lot of people's minds go to welfare. Uh, you know, it, it, that's the model that people have built into them over years that they view that through, right? So my my belief in solving these problems goes back to uh, the belief system and unlearning. So I'm a big believer that we, we built the, the constructs that represent society today. The social contract we have with society, we built those things, right? We built the notion of money. And, and what constitutes value. Yeah. We built all those things, right? Yep. So the question becomes, you know, what in the future represents a contribution to society? And, and is it still money? Why, why doesn't the caring of a child represent a contribution to society that is somehow compensatable? Why, why isn't caring for an elderly parent a valued work that, that we should compensate for. Uh, th- these are all questions that people are starting to ask. But the question in my mind is, do we have to rethink what represents value, contribution to society, and, and how one is co- compensated, right? What if, um, you, well, let's just throw out a, an idea. What if we, we got tokens that we can redeem any way we want to redeem, to sustain ourselves, to enjoy ourselves, whatever. And those tokens accumulate because you are caring for a child, you're caring for your elderly, you're doing social work, uh, you are re-educating yourself, and so you get these tokens just because you're reskilling yourself. And, and you know, it's just kind of a wild idea that the, the whole system that supports us today uh, would have to change. 
given the things that are coming. Because a universal basic income assumes at some level that there is money that can re be redistributed. And we've seen enough evidence to know that that system is flawed at some level. So even if you went there, the question is, how long can that society last? Uh, yeah, let's think about today's um, social contract. Uh, the, what we said before, fertility rates are dropping. The working age population is dropping. So there are less young workers supporting us elderly folks. And so what does that mean for Social Security and Medicare somewhere in the future, right? So all these things to me are not solvable with the same mental models that we use when we built those things, right? And unless we change our mental models, I, I really worry. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I so as they say, uh, God is in the big picture and devil's in the details, right? So I, I'm with you on this. Uh, the idea that we change that, our old concept of what is a value creator and what that means uh, going forward is going to be a necessity. Um, what that looks like, I don't know. And then, you know, you start to mention things and, and then again, uh, you know, there's still that part of me that I'm like, well, okay, uh, how are we going to detail that out? But uh, maybe that will be something that solves itself along the way, which I tend to sort of do maybe too often when I'm having these conversations, I tend to think, uh, that'll work itself out, uh, along the way as we, uh, as we advance and technologies advance. I, I find myself saying that. So I don't, I don't know if that's going to be true, but I, I agree with your sense that, uh, in the future, given what's coming and, and how the uh, population is aging and, and the whole redefinition of work, that we're going to uh, we're going to shift our paradigm into something different. So I, I, I'm still sort of agnostic on that idea, but I, I lean towards where you just uh, were on it. Uh, that being said, I, I did go to I, I think I mentioned earlier I went to that website of Will Robots Take My Job, and that was kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it you know not in a uh, you know. Not in the way that I, I walked away going, oh, no, you know, robots are taking jobs because I really <laughs> I, I, I count myself among those that feel that any loss of jobs due to technology or AI is going to be offset by a corresponding gain uh, or rethinking, like you just mentioned, what we do. So I, I saw that, uh, you know, commercial pilots was number 11 on the top 10 of high tech jobs. Uh, commercial pilots was 11. So I actually added it to my list. I was like, oh, look at that. Uh, and I thought, uh, so apparently I have a 55 percent chance uh, in the next uh, 30 years of being uh, out of work. That's fine with me. I, I don't know. I kind of like doing this right now. Interestingly, podcaster wasn't on the list. And I thought, well, that's a fine. How do you do? Aren't you supposed to be looking at jobs of the future? <laughs> Maybe I'm already not in the future doing this but yeah i mean do you i i feel like the job loss versus job gain due to technology is going to be something that we work out uh, again in a positive way as we go forward what do you think i um again one of those topics that's really polarized as far as belief systems on one side of this discussion that says we've been here before we've always solved these problems we we've created Different jobs, but we've we've you know the net the net was positive, and then the other side basically says that we've never seen this kind of uh, displacement before. What 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 stands out to me when when I have this conversation is that there will be plenty of jobs created as a result of all this innovation that's coming. However, it's not like past displacements where agricultural workers could go to the factory, or factory workers could go to the office. Uh, it's just different because the skill sets required to do these new jobs are, are, are higher skill sets. 
Um, it, it, you're just not going to see that. We already have a, a, a gap in being able to provide for the data scientists required out there, right? I mean, it, we, we can't solve that problem today, let alone if we create more and more of those kinds of jobs. So, so if you ask me today where my, my, uh, my head leans, uh, I, I'm still in the camp that says, I think we're going to have a problem because of the skill sets required for these kind of jobs. But that makes a broad assumption that, you know, the automation that many believe will occur actually occurs. Um, who knows if there are obstacles that slow that train down, whether it's regulatory obstacles or other. Um, I, I am a big believer that global pressures uh, and competitive disadvantage nation to nation will eventually pressure even nations that regulate to back off. Uh, and to advance. I, I just don't see how that occurs because of the competitive disadvantage a nation would be facing. But but that's a speculative, a speculative comment as well, right? So I, I, to answer your question, I think we're going to have a problem in the 2030 timeframe in the context of jobs. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. One of the things that I that I kept reading was when it comes to something like, let's say, artificial intelligence, uh, right now we have plenty of narrow AI, right? It's, it's that general AI that, that people are chasing. But uh, one thing that's been sort of shown already is that narrow AI is very good sometimes at doing a narrow job. And some of those narrow jobs are high-tech, high-paying jobs. And I was struck by the fact that, hey, if you're a highly trained an experienced x-ray technician, you may be out of a job. As a matter of fact, you will be out of a job long before the the waiter at TGI Fridays uh, because getting an AI to do that is uh, an incredible problem, whereas getting an AI to uh, uh, analyze an x-ray is not that hard. Yeah, getting an AI eventually to actually develop software uh, is, is is coming right. So yeah. even even the the engineers that are making good money today and have have jobs being thrown at them might have issues somewhere down the road. I, even but on the, on, I agree with you as far as the blue collar, the plumber, the electrician, etc. Uh, I do think though that the automation will reduce the numbers required for those kind of roles. Uh, you already see the, you know, the, the self-checkouts and, and the Amazon, Amazon Go. And yeah, great the point. Human, human in the loop, I, in those areas, I completely agree, will always be a phenomena. Uh, I just don't think that you're going to see as many jobs as we have there today. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, the ancillary stuff that they do uh, will be um, – Automatable. I don't know if that's a word or I just made it up if it is, but yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's exactly right. So incredible, incredible things to think about nonetheless, right? So I, uh, just amazing to me. You know, it goes back to, you just mentioned, and you mentioned it before, Google, like there's a sharing economy at this point uh, that's been, uh, I, I think, incredibly helpful. I mean, who, if you'd, have, if you'd have said to someone, you know, 30 years ago, you know, that, that your review of a restaurant, that what you thought of a restaurant was going to be seen by millions of people and maybe make a difference, along with everybody else getting to do the exact same thing, uh, rather than, you know, being the professional critic at the, uh, you know, uh, the local chronicle, well, that they would have scoffed. It's just amazing uh, what something like Airbnb or Uber or Google or Amazon, any of these companies have been able to accomplish. And every time that they're successful, an old paradigm or an old industry is there to, to, to try and stifle that. And so while I feel the plight of, say, a taxi cab driver in New York City who you know, spent a lot of money, scrimped and saved to get one of those tokens, and all of a sudden that token is nowhere near as valuable, 
Well, I, I kind of look at that as, yeah, this is, this is the growing pains that is part of that fourth age. Yep. So a big believer that once value is established, it's almost impossible to walk back from that value. So, you know, Uber and all the resistance is facing, it, it created value. And we have, a, we have a basic need as humans uh, for things to be easy, you know, simple, uh, convenient. And, and these are all examples of things that are making our lives easier, more convenient and simple. Uh, and so I, I really believe that you're going to see things pop up in just about every life experience you can imagine that attacks the friction associated with that experience, removes the friction, and then we get really attached to it because, as I said, we, it's a basic human need. Uh, that can now be served by technology and, and even the sciences. So, uh, yeah, it's fascinating that all those things have occurred. But on the other side of that discussion, um, you know, even something as, as simple as a review uh, could be a fake review, right? So there's fake news embedded even yes. in something as, as simplistic as that. And so I look at, I look at a, a, a phenomena like social media and what I envisioned initially as something that was going to be very positive to society because it gives everybody a voice. Uh, I could even see a world somewhere down the road where democracy is actually what it was intended to be because, you know, we have representatives uh, helping us govern because we're just too many people. But, you know, those, those social capabilities allow us to have a voice in the way it was intended. But now you look at what's happening, and it's actually having a negative impact on democracy if you think about what's going on today, right? And so those those are all things that we have to think about in the context of obstacle or accelerant, right? Does, does what's happening right now slow, we break up Facebook as an example, and it's just a simplistic example, yeah. um, but does that cry for, you know, slowing down the technology train, uh, slow down all the progress that, that I envisioned initially around what social could do for society? Yeah, no, I mean, when you see uh, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, in front of Congress saying, yeah, hey, uh, Maybe we need to be regulated, and I'm ready for that, and I'll help you craft that regulation. That's That has huge, huge implications. I mean, I, and so, again, I don't want to get into the political side of it, but uh, when it comes to what you just said, which is how social media, how our con- our connectedness, I guess, has um, has shaped who we are as a society, it, it seems to have been a negative thing. I, I kind of I hope that we're we're actually coming back, and maybe we'll get further before we get closer again. But I, I do believe that that truth rises uh, again. I think I'm optimistic on that, and so that eventually we'll start to have a shared understanding again. But uh, again, I think my hope is that tech, technological advancements kind of make it so that some of these arguments aren't even really become trivial in our mind, and you know, not without getting into specific examples. That's that's kind of what I hope. That's why I was asking earlier if you if you feel like you're above the uh, the fray, but I don't think anybody is. We're all humans, and we see it, and, you know. And it's and and you get to look at the future constantly. And as a matter of fact, that's what your that's your whole reason for your job. And so I, I thought, yeah, maybe he's sort of above. I wonder if he gets to sort of look at this the the, the discourse and be like, ah, eh, none of this is going to matter. Or oh yeah, this discourse matters right here, right now. For, for what I want to see coming down the road. So I, I asked uh, my, my blog audience uh, if they could help me determine what the catalyst that would drive the same kind of human action 
that occurred back in that second revolution where we did drive all that. Yeah, I, I participated in that poll, by the way. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of, one of the responses was um, was geopolitical instability. Mm. And so um, it, you, you can't go above the fray because those kinds of potential catalysts uh, are altering or potentially altering the path of some of these scenarios. So as a futurist, understanding the potential paths of these scenarios is something that I have to stay very close to. So, so if, for example... Um, the U.S., Europe uh, starts to really crack down and regulate even antitrust kinds of activities um, because of some of the issues that we just talked about. Um, I guarantee you that China won't do that. And so the, the discussion around China today obviously is getting more acute, but the, the geopolitical instability that could be caused by you know, a, a China that is much more dominant because of uh, their advancement in these areas where other parts of the globe slowed down, that might not necessarily be a good scenario that we want to see play out, right? So uh, so you can't stay above the fray because those things are just too impactful to where society ends up going uh, and its implications even in the short term to the path that they take to get there. Yeah, especially, and it's obviously I, I know what you mean. It's not about China. It's nothing against Chinese people. But if you do believe that, you know, a, a a Western liberal democracy is is uh, empowering and progressive for humanity. I tend to believe that. Then you're right. Um, having that go another way for a culture that, that doesn't believe that. I, but again, I you know at the end of the day, when I think that, I don't I don't get too. I try not to get too um, worried about it. I just think, okay, well, this is humanity. We've continued to evolve, and we will continue to evolve. And um, you mentioned already that you're, you have a spiritual side. So if you do have that, then maybe at the end of the day, you're able to put that into another realm, uh, compartmentalize in that way. I know I do in my own way. And I think, okay, well, this is going to work out. And we've seen that humanity, I'm a big fan of Stephen Pinker. And I follow him and I, you know, he, it, he's pretty compelling in, in his com- continual argument that we are better than we've ever been. And we probably will continue to get better. I like to think that way. There's no question. I mean, that to me, that you, there's no debate, right? There has never been a time in history where the world has been as as good as it is right now. And anybody that complains about that is really upset about change, yeah. uh, as opposed to really the fact that the world is in, in a better place than it's ever been. I, you, I don't know how anybody could dispute that. Um, so I absolutely agree with that. Uh, and and I do. I am a, I am a uh, optimist, not a pessimist. So I do look at these things and and fear that they slow down. Because I want to realize all the positive things that I think uh, the path we're on can deliver. Yeah, you know, are you are you a history buff, Frank? I I, I, I really wasn't. Uh, I, I always I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm like, you're a futurist. I'm thinking about. It's like I wonder if he can enjoy a Ken Burns documentary, <laughs> or if he thinks, ah, those people, they don't know. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the focus on history has been more because I said I think I said earlier I find it instructive. Yeah. Um, what what occurred in in like periods that were both uh, positive things and, and and negative things that we can avoid uh and and are is it instructive uh, i think it was winston churchill that said uh you by looking back you can see the future better uh and so i i have kind of taken that to heart and so my my historical views at this point i, I have found fascinating by the way in several really great books if anybody's interested uh the most recent one was alan greenspan's on uh, capitalism and its history a just fascinating book um but you look at you look at that journey and then take a look at the journey we're on and and is it instructive is there something that uh, 
that we did back then that we should think about doing again? Or is it something that we did back then that let's not do that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can think of probably examples on both sides of that. But I, I, I just – I thought I'd ask that because I'm thinking, yeah, I wonder if Frank actually uh, can can ever pay attention to history or if he's just constantly uh, looking forward. There's good and bad. I, you know, because I'm one of those guys that I, I am a history buff. I minored in history. I, I actually majored in journalism. Um, my, my path to being a, a, a Cobra pilot was was weird. but uh, So I was a journalism major, but I minored in history. I loved I loved history. I still love history, and I'll, I look at history, uh, and, I'm, and I know exactly what I'm doing. I know it when I do it, but I still kind of look at, at old photographs or, 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 or films with, with road, rose-colored glasses, like many people do. I'm like, ah, such a simple time. Well, Steven Pinker would say, no, it wasn't simple, and you were much more likely to die a violent death and, or of disease than you are now. And, and, and yet I still look back and think, ah, oh, yeah, you know, uh, I can look at, back at a picture of my great-grandparents and think, yeah, what a time, you know. Uh, on the other hand, I, I like to look forward to, and all of the things that we're talking about, I, I, I get excited. I'm like, I want to see them. I want to see them all. And, you know, I know that healthy, you know, life extension is not coming soon enough for, for me or, or probably for you. I, I <laughs> well, let's hope that it does. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, if it comes down the, uh, the pike and it, and it's available to everybody, I, uh, that would be great. Um, you know, I, I want, I want to get a couple final takes from you. Um, one, what, if you had to pick one thing that worried you uh, the most about the future, when you look to it, what would that be? Uh, I do believe that the um, altering of uh, the human species is worrisome to me. Um, that tipping point that I mentioned earlier, that would be the third fundamental tipping point in human history, at least as far as my tracking goes, um, that, that would be fundamentally alter what it, what the path of, uh, of humans as a society. Um, and, and so although some people would think that's a great thing, some people have gone as far as to say we have to do this so we can populate other planets because this planet is doomed. I mean, it's just a number of, of different conversations that you could have as to why we, why we want to do that. Um, but I don't know. It, it Maybe it goes back to my spiritual nature, but I, do con- I am concerned about the fundamental impact to uh, humanity. That's a great, great point. And, and, you know, we didn't even touch on that. I uh, I mean, you're on that list, and Musk is on that list, and I know one of his big uh, um, reasons for uh, existing is to get us to another planet, to Mars. Uh, he feels that uh, humanity's future is somewhere else in the cosmos. Uh, do, you, do you ever uh, – have you considered that? Do you think that that's plausible, or, or even should we be looking to that? Well, I, I try to stay away from th- those kind of outrageous statements. Yeah. Um, you Seems know, but probably science time, fiction, not as useful to your clients, I imagine. Well, yeah, but I, again, I, I try to separate that as well, right? I, I do not uh, intentionally stay away from you know future topics because I'm talking to a client uh, because I think these are all important discussions to be having. Uh, but no, more more along the lines of sensationalizing something um, that undermines it. Uh, for example, and again, not to get political. But when we look at things like the, the Green New Deal, um, and then you attach, you know, 12 years left on this planet to it, I, I, to me, that undermines your intent. Uh, it actually hurts. It hurts the discussion, not helps it. In the case of Musk and and um, other planets, I mean, the connection between merging with machines and populating another planet is, you know, a, a human machine converged individual is more likely to survive on a planet whose uh, climate is not conducive to uh, to you know sustaining sustaining life, so there's a lot going on there in terms of combining 
both the notion that the, this earth is doomed with what does it take to actually survive on, a, on another planet as, as humans. Um, so again, a lot, a lot to unwrap <laughs> as you look at this. Yeah, stuff. talk about devils in the details. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Let's go to Mars. It's going to be great. Well, let's do that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you could ask two questions right away that no one would be able to answer, let alone the next million of them. So that, that's, that's true. And it's one thing to be talking to your clients about, hey, winter, uh, you know, autonomous car is going to affect your business. And it's another thing altogether to look them in the eye and be like, okay, let's talk about your business and how it looks on Mars. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, yeah. yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a good point. So I'll tell you what, Frank, and I'm, I'm mindful of your time. Uh, I want to bring it back. Uh, I'll tell you another story uh, about my daughter again uh, and, and get your take because I've asked what you're worried about. But so my daughter, uh, she, uh, I'd already talked her in and she snuck out as she does and I'm up there working. Uh, I was getting ready for this conversation actually. And uh, she comes in. She's like, oh, you're working on your podcast. I said, yeah. She says, I can, can I help? And I was like, ah, well, you can sit here. You'd be moral support, but don't let mommy hear you. And so she's, she's sitting there. She's like, she's like, uh, who is your podcaster? And, it, and by that, she meant my guest. And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to a man who um, tries to tell the future. And she kind of thought about that. And she said, cool. Maybe in the future, they could bring unicorns back to life. <laughs> and I smiled and I just looked at her for a minute. I thought to myself, you know, uh, yeah, that might be a possibility because my thoughts were the way that we're able to um, uh, manipulate genes it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility that we could create a unicorn in the future. And so her, her, her thought that came from a childlike place of innocence may actually be something that, that is possible. And what struck me, I guess, uh, later on was that, you know, her, when I told her that I was talking to someone who, who thinks about the future, her reaction was something that came from a childlike wonder and from a place uh, that, you know, an optimism for something that's beautiful and magical. Hmm. And so many of us think about the future uh, in, in a way that's not that. And so... To me, it just kind of summed up, uh, you know, everything that I'd been looking at in, in, uh, in terms of getting ready for this and what I do in my normal life. Is the future going to be beautiful, magical, and wondrous, or is it going to be this scary, scary place? So I guess what I wanted to say was, what are you excited about? What, what is beautiful and magical in the future? Well, first, the uh, scenario that you just painted on the unicorn, that's actually one of the ones I track. It's called de-extinction. De so bringing back an extinct species, which we've already done once, I think it was some kind of sheep or or, or goat. I can't remember, but so it, it's not like it's science fiction. Um, but I, I said it a couple times. The the path forward requires balance. Uh, I show a visual that's actually a subway map that has the uh, major innovations like artificial intelligence as a subway stop, and then the paths are green or red. You might have seen the vision. I have. I've and seen it. Yep. Yeah, it just talks to the fact that any one of these innovations could go horribly wrong um, or, you know, usher in a new period of human flourishing. And so what excites me are the green paths on that uh, on that visual, the, the places that we can take humanity as far as solving some of those grand challenges. Um, and, and although some believe, you know, we've, we've pretty much done everything we can as far as our standard of living, one, we haven't done it globally. And so there's a lot left to be done in, in emerging economies and markets as far as our standard of living. And two, uh, I think there's a lot left for us to do, yeah. uh, whether, again, it's, it's solving chronic disease, it's making sure nobody goes hungry, it's enabling the disabled. 
Uh, there's just so many things that I can see all this innovation leading to. Uh, that's what excites me. And and what concerns me is um, all the obstacles that could potentially be thrown in its way, um, either because of, of uh, fear uh, over privacy issues, a simplistic thing like that, but just an example of some of those things that might might uh, get in the way of progress. But the question was, what excites me? And, and those possibilities excite me. Yeah. Well, Frank, I think that's just a great, great place to end it. We've been at it for almost an hour and a half, and uh, wow. I, I like that we both kind of ended it with, hey, there's so much that can, we can do, and I'm, and I'm thankful that you're out there helping people to see those paths forward and, and follow those green lines, hopefully, in, in some way that uh, that takes us to a better place, because I think that we have, uh, I think that we can do a lot more, too, and I'm and I'm hopeful for that. I, I wish I was around to see it all. So, so here's to... Uh, uh, a health extension, a life extension uh, sometime before we go, and uh, maybe we could do this again in the future. Sounds great. <laughs> thank Thanks you. for having me. Yeah, thank you so much, Frank. It really was a genuine pleasure. Likewise. All right. Take care. Take care. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us here again today in the Ready Room. I'm your host, Richard Frederick. And I really hope you enjoyed our conversation today. I know I really did, and I'm looking forward to bringing you more of the same in the near future with intriguing and inspirational guests from all walks of life. If you did like it and you want to join us again, please take a moment and subscribe to The Ready Room. And if you could, rate and review the show on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever it is you're getting your podcast today. You can find us online at readyroombrief.com. I'm your host, Richard Frederick, and I look forward to being with you next time in The Ready Room.